Okay, guys, very welcome back to the show. And I've got a very, very special guest today, Mr. Steve Cairn, who you may know as one half of the fabulous ones, Skinner, and even Doink for a little while as well. How are you, man? I'm great. That's a variety of characters, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah. Well, look, man, we're going to start off by why we're here today, and we're going to talk about this baby. The Kern Chronicle, Volume 1, with Ian Douglas, who I've had on the show before. Fantastic guy, fantastic author. We'll start off talking about the book. How did this idea come about, and is it something that you kind of always wanted to do? The the book? The idea was just, I never thought I would write a book, Maurice. I just... You know, I didn't want to get lost in the shuffle of all the other wrestlers. There's so many significant characters in my industry from, um, I cover four generations. So you could pick a generation and you'd never read my book in that generation nine times out of 10. But my friends and my peers have always enjoyed my stories because that I did span so many generations and including my students that are current WWE stars now. When I ran FCW, I'd tell them stories of my travels and things in the past and some of the ups and downs and things like that, but they enjoyed the stories. And I've been I've been pressured for the last couple of years from friends saying, why don't you ever write a book? Why don't you ever write a book? And I go, well, I'm going to be the only one that reads it. And they go, no, no, no. When, when people read the stories you have to tell because that you were in territorial days, you went I mean, you traveled Europe when it was just auto over there, and you've, you've been to Japan a million times. And, you know, in all of those times, people just relate to your WWF time like a Skinner, which was short time, but it was at toward the end of my career. Yeah, I had, you know, 18 years before I ever even did Skinner. And so there was quite a bit of history that, you know, people had never heard of. And I've just found, like I mentioned earlier, there's so many of these comic cons and stuff there. People are collectors. I mean, you know, the fabulous ones, uh, action figures were the very first action figures by Remco toys. And we, we got them when we were working for Vern Gagne in the AWA. Well, I was like a little kid when they came out and I went to toys R us and I'm going, Oh my God, I got an action figure. And I pulled every one of them off the rack and put them in a big basket. And I took it up to the front. And when I was checking out, the guy goes, wow, you must be a wrestling fan. I go, no, that's me right there. And he looked at me and he looked at the action figure and goes, no way. That ain't you. And I said, well, it actually looks better than me, but that's me. And then he wouldn't buy it. And I got so mad, I pulled out my driver's license and said, read my driver's license. What does that say? Does that say Steve Kern? Who spells Kern? K-E-I-R-N. Just me. So anyway, I covered a lot of history. And the stories that, that I tell are not to damage people. It's not to throw rocks at anybody. I was in a yeah. business that I get it. You work for people and, you know, then you don't work for people. But that's how the business works. It's just like any other job. Yeah. Yeah. And it's nice, like, uh, it's nice to be on a podcast like sometimes and i i've had wrestlers on and i never have the intention of getting people to trash each other but just sometimes guys do fly off the handle at times but uh i always prefer a nice relaxed kind of show laid back and like stories they don't have to be bad to be good if you get what i mean nick well i know plenty of bad stories maurice i mean i buried a lot of my friends over 44 years and they weren't all good outcomes. 
but do I need to throw dirt on their grave? Absolutely not. I'm at peace. Um, I'm a godly man. I've, I'm at the point in my life where I realize I'm closer to meeting my maker than I was a long time ago. So I, one of the things I don't need to do is pile up a bunch of trash for him to sort out because I was trying to run people down. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's as a simple saying in the United States, your mom would tell you if you're growing up, who says, if you ain't got something nice to say about somebody, don't say nothing. Well, yeah. that works most of the time. But being in the wrestling business, every once in a while, you want to say, hey, you know what? Working with this guy was horrible. And so, and then give your reason why. I mean, he's old, he's on his way out. You're a young guy coming in, you're full of fire and he's full of smoke because he's out. But, you know, you just, you just dealt with it. But I, you know, I'm not telling you that when I wrote the book that I didn't say a few things because I've already had critiques where they said, well, he was kind of hard on Memphis when he came as one of the fabulous ones. Well, I just told the story like it was. I came out of the NWA, which was Florida. Then you could be in Georgia. You could be in North Carolina, South Carolina. So I worked for the Crockett's, Barnett, Eddie Graham. And it was all the same style. It was, yeah. it was, it was a, it was a wrestling style. We wrestled coming off the top rope was a DQ going over the top was a DQ. So it wasn't a lot of aerial stuff. It was just wrestling, but it was based off of emotion. We took an audience on an emotional roller coaster with of good versus evil. When I went to Tennessee, um, Jerry Jarrett found me and Kevin Sullivan in Atlanta at the Omni on a show for Barnett. And we had a match that we fought all the way through the top of the Omni. And he said, man, I need these two guys. And so he got Barnett to switch us out. But when I got to Tennessee, it was entertainment. And I had never mm -hmm. dealt with entertainment. I mean, it was like I called midget high spots. I mean, you know, <laughs> stuff, stuff to make the people laugh. Yeah. And then get them laughing. And then the heel would cut you off and get heat. And then you they'd be went from laughing to being mad. And it took me a while to adapt to that course. Fabulous ones. I, I fell into track, but it took a while to get into that. So it's different yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Someone is saying here that they remember you in the WWF in Dublin. It was either 1991 or 1992 over here in Ireland. I was there. I was there. I mean, you know, I, I kind of went on and I've got a poster in my garage and I think it says first European tours. And I think it was 92, but Brian Blair argues with me. He's, he lives close to me and Brian Blair tells me, Oh no, I was on the first night, um, European tours. Um, the killer bees were, and I'm going, wait a minute. Why wouldn't my poster say the first European tours? So, and we did, we went up, we traveled all over, but I remember going to Ireland and Dublin. And so I, I, I got, you know, I got an opportunity to see, Talking to you and talking to people there was like talking to Robin Williams. I'd have to keep, <laughs> I had to keep saying, what'd you just say? It's like talking. I just talked to Drew McIntyre and I told him I was going to talk to you. And Drew goes, well, good luck, coach. Understand. And I said, no, I got it. I got this. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. A lot of people, though, will remember, I suppose, the Skinner character because of the way the WWF is, the global persona that it is. And I heard you talk about before Vince McMahon's influence on your character. Do you want to tell people about that? Sure. 
Well, I was in a, I was kind of in a limbo stage right there. What what was happening? And I'll try not to bore you and, and make mm. it too long. But what was happening in wrestling history was all the territories were shutting down. Vince was taking over the United States. And what it was doing what it was doing was causing a monopoly. And all these territories had top guys in them from Texas to, you know, Portland, Oregon, the Carolinas, all over. And they all got congregated in the WWF. Well, I'm observing what's going on. And I dodged going to New York most of my career only out of fear. I didn't like major cities and and big, you know, um, industries like that because I was afraid I was always going to get lost or something. I was used to more of a laid back Florida where there's a lot of beaches or Georgia. I mean, everybody, if you break down, they'll fix your car right there. But so I had a fear, but what had happened to the industry was that it being overtaken. Well, I went to high school with Hulk Hogan, and he was doing really well. And I saw Jimmy Hart here at a store, and I told Jimmy, I said, well, you know, I think I'm wanting to kind of continue working. And I wanted to give WWF a try. Tell Terry to give me a call. So Terry called me, and I said, listen, I don't know what I'm doing, and I'm getting older, so I'm kind of moody. So, but I would like to come in and, you know, see what he offers me. So he flew me up and I had just in the state of Florida, I had just killed 15 alligators. They had the very first, um, it wasn't a hunt. It was called a harvest. But what you did is you hunted them and you would hunt at night. No guns. You had to kill them with a bang stick and then pull them into the boat. Well, I walked into his office and I'm thinking, well, everybody's a gimmick. I better come as a gimmick. I mean, you know. Now, I'm one of the fabulous ones, last picture, right? So I yeah. come in there with bleach blonde hair, nice little Miami Vice short beard. And I say, well, I don't know what you want to do, Mr. McMahon. I laid all these alligator pieces on his desk, an alligator skull. I think you could see one in the back right here, a big alligator yeah. skull. I laid um, hides like, like that hide right there on the wall on his desk and different different alligator parts that I had just killed. And I said, you know, I haven't seen anybody in your dressing room that's dressed in wrestling tights except for Hogan. So maybe he says, I hate to go home. He said, let your hair grow out to a natural color because it was bleach blonde. And he said, let your beards just continue to grow. Don't keep it cut nice and neat. So I did. And for a month they paid me and I'm thinking, well, this is great. I hope they forget about me. Just pay me for the rest of my life. But unfortunately, called me up and brought me back and I'm not sure if like some of the other characters I saw if this wasn't just kind of a little bit of a kick back to me but when I went in there I was pretty and when he said to me he said Steve did you see the movie Deliverance and I'm going yeah I saw it maybe Five or six times, I'm trying to really be nice to Vince because I want a job. So, oh, yeah, yeah, I saw it, I saw it. And he goes, I want you to be one of those guys. And I go, oh, oh, you want me to be Burt Reynolds? And he goes, what? No, I said, yeah, Burt Reynolds. Yeah, I'm cute like Burt Reynolds. I can be Burt Reynolds. And he goes, no, 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 no. You got the wrong guy. I want you to be one of the two guys in the woods with Ned Beatty and the one that says, hey, boy, you got a right pretty mouth. And I'm going, oh, man, that's dramatic. So anyway, 
I just I just went as I did in my job for so many years. I just went with it, whatever they wanted to do. They came up with the costume and it, it was just go to a store and get, you know, some pants and put stains all over them and ripped up a shirt. And I went to work. When I started to work, I realized that the country in the Northeast was totally different so far as crowd response. They love the heels. Yeah. From Detroit, Boston, Madison Square Gardens, Philly Spectrum, all the way up in there, you can't buy a boo if you're a heel. And so I'm going out there and I'm wrestling guys like Ricky Steamboat, Kerry Von Erich, and Bret Hart. And they're booing them. These are big baby faces and they're cheering Skinner. So I went to Vince and said, listen, I want to add a dimension to my character. And he goes, what is it? I said, I want chewing tobacco. And the reason I want chewing tobacco is because I want it to run out of my mouth. And I want to be nasty. I want to be somebody you shouldn't like. Yeah. So, yeah. So I couldn't really chew tobacco. So I chewed licorice, but it looked like chewing tobacco anyway. So that's, hey, do how, you remember, Skinner got, that's how Skinner got born. Do you remember your first opponent? No, but I remember the first there match. My first match was a TV match. And it was a guy that was an enhancement guy. And it, it's not, how you doing? It, it was me. <laughs> it was me, Mr. Kern. I what? was your first match. <laughs> I'm Mario Mancini. I'm your debut match in the WWF. Well, see, that's, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't with a nothing, wasn't nothing. In, and I'm not trying to beg off, but it wasn't anything personal. It was just that. You weren't like a main character, and I was a new guy, and so you're excited. I'm excited. And I remember we had a really good match, and, you know, just back and forth. But when I got back, it was shortly thereafter, and I think it was the very next week, and Vince pulled me aside, and he said, hey, what are you doing? He said, you went out there and wrestled. And wrestling you, that's what we did. We made a lot of moves back and forth and stuff. And he goes, you're an alligator poacher out of the Everglades. How do you know how to wrestle? And so I had to alter my style and try to retard my wrestling. And that's the only way I'd ever worked before was more Florida-style wrestling, Georgia-style wrestling, and NWA. And so I had to just basically back off and... I mean, you know, I had people that were writing dirt sheets back then saying Steve Kerr must have fell on his head because he doesn't wrestle at all. I'm going like, wait a minute, this is what I'm told to do. And and when you're in this business, you don't be creative. You just do your job. No matter what job you get, it doesn't matter. You just, if it's like me or Mario. If they'd have come to me and said, you need to put Mario over tonight, and I'd just say, well, how long do you want? And what's he used for a finish? because I mean, that's business but you know it, it's it's like you just you can't say okay i've had people say well you're never going to be in the hall of fame you didn't win no titles in wwf i said well you think that's my fault i never won a title and i held over 50 they tell you you're getting the title tonight that's how you win it and then they tell you you're losing it <laughs> so i'm going now i'm responsible they said well if you'd have done better i said well if i'd have been the booker I'd have beat Hogan the first week I was there. I'd have beat Ultimate Warrior, made him tap out. I'd have mowed through Big Boss Man. Undertaker wouldn't have stood a chance, and I'd have been the world champion. But I won the booker. 
<laughs> so it's hard to explain to fans sometimes. You know, they act like, sometimes act like they know what's going on, but then sometimes they hit you with something that is so, oh, you didn't earn that. Well, wait a minute. You know, it's not on a merit thing. This isn't professional baseball or football or hockey. It's not like you're going to be in the Hall of Fame because of how many home runs you had. It's a, it's a very political business. So you have to explain it sometimes. But I wouldn't recognize you in 100 years, Mario. No. I apologize. What, what, no, don't, Mr. Kern, please. Because Both of you, please. I bet I, could walk, I bet I could walk by you in a store and you wouldn't know me either. Well, listen, Don Morocco was one of my, my closest friends when I was there. Because by the time I worked with you, I was already there for seven years. No and, kidding. And I yeah, and I was 25 years old in 91. So I, I broke in six weeks after I graduated high school in 84 there. Right. When I was the special guest, surprise guest on Morocco's podcast, and I popped in, he went, Well, you got old. I went, Thanks, Don. I appreciate it. But you know, yeah, we all get old. That's well, what... here's here's the thing, Maurice, and, it, and and I'm not going to take a lot of your time because the, the, you have a legend on your show, an absolute legend. Well, thank you. Well, I'm humbled. Well, no, no, listen, I. It's funny because guys like me, and he'll tell you, I I was on the lowest form of the of the wrestling food chain, right? Jobber, right? So I I don't like being called an enhancement talent because I'm not a human Viagra, right? So. I'm a jobber. Okay. So, yeah, I'm I don't jobber. like calling. I don't like calling people jobbers. No, I like. Jobbers. It's almost like calling them a jabroni. I mean, you know, oh, I no. know. Like, he was right. I was. I did. I did a lot of jobs in my career. Well, yeah. Fortunately for me, they weren't the all my jobs. You know, to put people over, but you know, somebody got to lose. I and I always looked it. at it like, just pay me. He's right. I, I did get excited because in that match, he said, go over the top. I went, woo, I haven't been over the top in a long time on TV. <laughs> I flew right over the top rope, you know. But, I'll help you. <laughs> you know, for, for, for me, you know, Mar I do Maurice's podcast once a month. And I, and, I, and I own Paradise Alley Pro Wrestling, which is a wrestling school and promotion with Paul Roma. Right. And, and you know. What what kills me is, and I always say my opinion, and, and I I tell the truth. It's my truth anyway. You know, you have a guy like Steve Kern that comes into New York, and he's trained by he's trained by the Briscoes, the Funks, Eddie Graham. Harley Race. Harley Race. I worked with Harley Race. I worked with Terry Funk. It's like getting master skills. But uh, uh, right. It's like getting trained by uh, how to hit by Ruth Gehrig and DiMaggio, right? Absolutely. I consider Bret Hart and another guy who I consider one of the one of the master technicians in the ring, and that's Bill Eady. You know, great Steve, guy. Oh, Steve Kern. Is on that list. Well, that's I, now I'm really humble. You made me start crying pretty I good. watched <laughs> this. I watched this guy work. And listen, Thank you. I'm, Thank I'm, you. I'm gonna say it again. And I know that the fans have heard it a million years. When I broke into the business, I, I broke 
I wanted to break into the wrestling business. I want to break into the entertainment business. I wanted to wrestle. I wanted to be a grappler. I wanted to be a scientific wrestler. I wanted to learn as much as I could. I wanted to be the best I could be in the ring. And when I watched guys like Steve Kern work and Bill Eady and Bret Hart and Owen Hart and, and Kurt Henning, I'm like, wow. And, and I worked with, with these guys and, and I worked some house shows with them. And that's when you really learn. So I, I didn't, you know, if they gave me a promo to cut, I, I could have done it. But I, I was on the lower end of the wrestling food chain, so that wasn't going to happen. Well, but, we've, we've all been there. But but you take a guy, a caliber, and he goes, and and, the, and, and God bless Vince McMahon. He's the, he's the Pied Piper. He made it all happen. Brilliant business guy, genius. The people who worked with him were geniuses, Pat Patterson, those guys. You look at a guy like Steve Kern and go, hey, you're not a wrestler. You're from the Everglades. Are you <laughs> out of your mind? Are you crazy? Make him shave. Give him his blonde hair back. Rip that costume out off of him and use him the way you were supposed to use him. He, he a master technician in the ring that could that could work and work and work. And and you you put a knife between his teeth and made him punch and kick, and he wasn't able to display truly who he yeah. really. The, the, old, Steve Kerr. <laughs> the, the respect they gave him. Listen, listen, here's he, Maurice. Here, here it goes. Here's he, he, the, this is the way New York works. Mario, we're not going to call you Mario Mancini anymore. We're going to call you Mario Mancini. And you get to pick between the pink tutu and the purple tutu. And we're going to pay you, we're going to pay you 7,000 a week. Now, which one you want? And I go, I guess I'll take the purple one. That That's the way it works. So Give me the got, licorice. Or yeah, you gotta take what's given, but you gotta take what's given to you for the money. But it was it was it it was it was a waste. They finally gave him because if I you know what if I was walking behind Steve Kern and I said, Mr. Kern, can can I carry your bag? And he went, No, he'd be right. I'm not worthy to even carry this guy's bag. I'm wow, not nice. worthy to carry this guy's Mario. Bag. Did you want me to send you a check for No, no I'm just telling the truth. I'm just telling the truth based on wrestling. I'm ready. To, I'm ready to put you on my payroll, Mark. <laughs> based on <laughs> wrestling. Can you follow me? Can you follow me around to promote this book? <laughs> just, I need a spokesman. Just you just seem to be the guy. <laughs> it's, it's just based on wrestling. And you know, I looked at Bill Edie at these conventions that we do together. And I see him a lot. Sign our encyclopedias. I go, I looked at him one day and I go, can I tell you something without you thinking I'm a mark? He goes, well, I go, you're one of the best wrestlers I've ever seen. And he's like, wow. I go, in 1981, when I was 15 years old, I went to the arena and watched you work with Bob Backlund. There wasn't one punch or kick in that match. They were doing stuff. I My jaw dropped. I'm like, Wow. These guys can wrestle. And that's what I tell my students. I go, you could come out with any gimmick, any music. You could do anything you want. But at the end of the day, I want a fan to look at another fan and go, wow, that guy can wrestle. You know what I mean? It, it's. It, I'm just saying the, the, the truth. Thank God later on, they gave this man the respect he finally deserved and had him in charge of training. You, you know what I mean? Who the hell do you want to train you how to wrestle? Well, Steve Kern's going to teach you how to what? He's he what what time where do I show up, you know what I mean? So, 
you, you know, at least they gave him they gave him that that which he deserved. You know what I mean? Wow. I like that's, to say, I don't want to take really... a lot of your time. I don't want to take a lot of time. I just no, 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 Mario. I, I just one thing up that your debut match, man. One, one, one <laughs> thing, one thing you hit on when you started mentioning names and the people that you put over. You were talking about some really close friends of mine, and you hit on Kurt Henning. And Kurt Henning and I were very close. What a great and, our, and when he was young, the fabulous ones went to AWA, and Kurt Henning attached himself to me like a magnet. Yeah. And we had so much fun together. But you also talked about your opinion. And here's the thing, Mario, what I learned in my my uh, education of wrestling is, is wrestling is an opinion. Everybody's got an opinion. Maurice has got opinion. You have opinion. I have opinion. They may be close to the same on a lot of topics, but they may be so far out on others because of what you've seen or what you've witnessed growing up as a kid or a wrestling fan, then turned into following it closely. Now you're subjected to, here's what's happened, and I'll just make it, here's Steve Kern's opinion, because I ran the developmental. I was an agent for six years under Vince before I did that, so I was right on top of the talent. But what I saw was a transition, not only for, to characters, but I saw a transition to the psychology of wrestling. And here's what happened. In my era... The 72 is when I started through the 80s. We went out seven nights a week to the same city 52 times a year. And we had to be different every time we stepped into the ring. And we didn't rehearse. We were told the finish of the match and how long to go. And there was never a match under 20 minutes. So you had to go out and entertain your audience with a, a facade of wrestling to MLA to fight. And what we had to do is take them on a roller coaster ride emotionally. And every city and every area was different. So you had to adapt to their area. They didn't adapt to you. You didn't force feed them what you wanted them to see. And okay, if you don't like it, tough shit, we're gone. You went out and you listened to your audience and you worked with people that were so good at their craft Every, when I was a baby face, every heel I worked with was unbelievable. And they would know how to manipulate an audience. Those people that would sit on the front row and say, wrestling is fake. Your object that night was convincing this match isn't. This match is real. Or we're mad at each other enough that we're whacking each other pretty hard. And if you look at nowadays... I say it's simple. It's the two E's. It's entertainment nowadays. In our day, it was emotion. You went out and you affected them emotionally. They said wrestling wasn't real. And I said, well, then why are you standing up wanting to scream and yell at my opponent and cut, cut his throat, kill him, shoot him, whatever? If you don't think this is real, why are you reacting? So oh, I got caught up in the moment. That's what our job was. And it was a dying art. And I'll leave you with one last thing, not to bore you, but when Vince, as an agent, when Vince wanted to cut out the raspberries and just have them as officials, I said, 
you know, in a production, me, I said, well, Vince, you know, listen, I must have spent my whole life doing this. And there's a lot of times I've wrestled guys that were scared, lost, hurt, whatever. And I've wrestled and competed with the referee. But I entertained the audience. If I was a heel, I'd push the ref. He pushed me and I fell down. If, you know, if I threatened the ref, he threatened me and I backed off. I mean, you know, you worked the match and then you, you were t conducting the referee. Hey, I'm getting ready to give this guy a thumb to the throat. Don't be standing right there looking at me. Right, right, right. Go right. find somewhere to hide in the right, ring, will you? Right, or right. just go look at my back for one second because it, I got to do something behind your back, not right straight in front of you. So it's really changed. But the bottom line on the whole thing is that you can't argue with success. It's still successful. So do old timers throw rocks at it or they just accept the change? I mean, you know, I see my friends all the time. Oh, what did you do? You ruined the business. You taught all them guys how to do them moonsaults. I said, when have you ever seen me do a moonsault? <laughs> <laughs> I get a nosebleed if I have to climb to the second row. I'm not going up there. I made a living off of this body, but I had to do it a long time. I didn't want to just trash it. So, yeah, there's been some change. Mario, really appreciated your input. That was fantastic. Man, I feel like I should send you something. Do you need anything? <laughs> you need some Florida oranges? Oh, or no, no. Listen, I just a, spoke the you truth. You want a baby alligator? <laughs> no, no. I just, I, you know what? I just, I just spoke the truth. And uh, for me, I, you know, I could be wrong. Uh, fans can pipe in and go, hey, he's got no all right that good do. part you said about me wasn't wrong. Well, I, well, well, I tell you what, people can. I'll make you a clip. Oh, he's gone. I think the Undertaker got him. This happens sometimes when he gets a phone call. The, the boys, the boys could even Maurice chime just in and cut go. you off. Yeah, no, the boys can chime in and go. Mancini is just an enhancement talent. What's he? Do? But the the key is the key is is I was there eight months before WrestleMania one, all the way through nineteen ninety two. I was I was there, and and it, you know what? I just call it as as I see it. Listen, he, here's the deal. You, you have to use a guy like Steve Kern in a smart way with, with psychology because you know what? There, Maurice got to understand something. Guys can get over with their wrestling ability. There's only very few guys in the wrestling business that didn't know how, that, that weren't that good in the ring, but their gimmick was bigger than their wrestling talent. Two guys right off the top of, top of my head, Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior. They're, those guys could have ran out to the ring, charged up the crowd, and left and went back to the dressing room without without even locking up. People would still yeah. be going crazy, right? But, it, it, you know, I just think people with superior talent like yourself, they could have used it in, in, in a different way. But I'm going to leave you with this. You know, everything evolves. And, and you know, in, in 2003, we had flip phones, right? Now we have these iPhones. We're watching TVs out of tubes. Now they're flat screens. And, and everything evolves and becomes better. Sometimes I feel in a wrestling business, it's the only business that evolved and got worse. You know, I take my students and I go, okay, you've learned a lot of stuff. Give me five minutes and make it make sense. Make it make sense. Tell a story. Give me five minutes. And they talk about the match for 15 minutes. I go, you're going over the match longer than what it is. You know what I mean? And they're, and they're going over each and every move. It, it, and nobody believes me when I go on our day and a house show, you go, hey, what's the finish? Oh, that's the finish? Okay, see you out there. 
even if you're going 17 minutes, you see how everything was done in the ring. Now, now everything every, move by move by move by move by move. When anyway. I was when I was an agent, right after I'd come out of a production meeting after lunch, we'd go into a production meeting with vets, and when I come out, I had assigned matches. Um, it got worse when they extended Raw another hour. But at first, I usually had one to two matches, and I, I was they targeted me with the girls a lot of times because sometimes they're difficult to work with. But when you when you're talking about their time, I'd come out at maybe two o'clock in the afternoon, and I'd find my talent and say, "Okay, you and you are working against each other. I need six minutes. I need you over. I'll come back to you." Because I don't want to tell you how to do this. I'm not you. I want to give you the respect to you come up with your match. And when I hear it, I want to understand it and, and have some logic. Or I'm going to tell you what my opinion is and try to alter a few things. And they'd be out there and I'd come back and it'd be like 6 o'clock and I'm going, what are you guys talking about? We're talking about our match. I go, it's only six minutes. We've been you've been talking for four hours. Are you planning on stretching your match out? I said, just like you said, I said, we wrestled seven nights a week in separate dressing rooms. And guess who brought the finish was the referee. And the referee'd bring three finishes at a time. And I always go, Holy shit, I hope he gave us the right finish. Yeah. Went out there and you just worked basically ad lib. You worked by feel. You worked with people that were so good. You didn't have to talk. But you didn't have all these plans. Um, I smoked pot when I was younger. There ain't no way I could remember four-hour conversation and then and put it down into six-minute match. I had trouble remembering to finish sometimes. And it's only like two minutes. Yeah. So I said, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't make it. I wouldn't make it in this world. I can't, I can't stand on my hands. I can't no. do a moan salt. No. I can't do any acrobatics. I went to no. Guatemala when I was a young guy, and the Guatemalans wanted me to do flying moves, and I just no speaky Spanish, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I just I just caught him in midair and slammed him. I mean, Eddie yeah. Graham had told me, hey, kid, you're going to be, a, you know, you're a green bean, and you're going over there, and they're going to want you to do things to make them look good. But I'm going to tell you, just don't sell and kick ass. And that's what I did. <laughs> but I had no idea what I was doing. Almost got killed. But at the same time, it was okay. Do I want to learn to be a Lucha Libra guy? Nah, this is not a, you're not looking at an acrobat. There's no way. I wish I could do stuff like that. And I can when I'm underwater at about 30 <laughs> feet. I can flip over sideways. I can stand on one hand. But that's about the time I'm getting ready to shoot a fish with a spear gun. <laughs> Uh, Maurice, you can have him on ten more shows. You you wouldn't be able to cover yeah. everything. No, I, and I apologize because if you have a focus, I'm a focus breaker. Uh, mean, yeah. No, no, no. Listen, you you Maurice, you got so much more to do. Oh, the Undertaker got him again. I just wanted to pop on and and say hello as your debut match, man. It was an honor. And well, a thanks, Mario. That's when I just like when I worked at Harley Race and Terry Funk. 
it was an honor and a privilege, man. And and I I, I really you know what you you know what you missed. One hour Broadways with world champions Terry Funk, Harley Race, Ric Flair, Jack Briscoe. I'm so blessed. I did when they'd come to Florida because if they were trying to keep us strong as local regionalized guys, they'd say, okay, kid, go out there with Harley and do an hour Broadway. And I nice. go, what? Nice. And they go, yeah, you can do it. Harley's going to do it six nights this week. So you can do it too. So I would go, I'd do an hour Broadway and Maurice and both of you, Mario, I learned more working with the greatest wrestlers in the world for an hour straight, keeping an audience involved than I learned in any wrestling school anybody could ever run. There, you know, that's I know what you're about. running a wrestling school, but you know the secret is you don't learn in school. You learn technique, movement, but you learn in front of an audience. That's when you're in a learning curve. That's yep. when you're under the tree. I'm, I'm in the learning tree now. They just threw me out in front of 17 people in an armory in East yeah. Bum. Well, I can't say that. But anyway, yeah. you know, there's only 17 people, but you need to entertain them. <laughs> Good luck. So, yeah. A lot of things in common. Where do Thank you live? Thank you so much, guys. Where do you Thank live? You. Where do you live? I live in Connecticut. I live okay. in Connecticut. Well, that's too bad. Both you. Both both you guys are going to be in New Jersey at the 80s con in a few weeks. So I'll see you on May 6th. I'll see you on May 6th. You got it, brother. All Give right. me the hug. Well, don't come up and try to rib me and go, hey, who am I? <laughs> <laughs> I won't do that to you. I won't do that. Okay. I, won't well, do I look that forward to you. seeing you shaking your hand. You too, brother. You guys nice have, a, have a nice talking to you, Mario. You too, God Sam. bless. See you, man. There you go. Isn't that just random? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was a there was a few people in the chat there one of asking questions about sure. Oh, you're you're I've seen this before, but maybe other people haven't. Uh your story about the, the licorice with the ultimate warrior. Oh, spitting in the ultimate warrior's face. Yeah. Yeah, you know, those those stories when you talk about them over and over again, a lot of times you're saying things and you just it's just kind of a, what emotion you're in and what kind of mood you're in. I really didn't like the ultimate warrior and it wasn't, it wasn't anything personally did to me. It was his yeah. attitude in the dressing room. I was a serious veteran and he was a guy that come in and he did do well and he was a big attraction, but it was his body, but he wasn't an actual worker. He was just an attraction. And he told me before the match, whatever you do, don't spit that licorice in my face because he had face paint on. And that was like telling me, you know, don't do something, which is kind of hard to me accept at the time. So I did. But he had, in, in, in essence, he really had the last couple of moves because that I was submitting, surrendering to him and he was beating me. So he actually pulled it out of my mouth and wiped it on my face. But there's no way I could hop up and smack him for it. So for what I did at the beginning to him, he got his little payback in on the end. And it wasn't like he was afraid of me, but he didn't come to me after the match is what we always do. We come to each other and thank each other for not getting hurt. But he didn't come to me and thank me for putting him over because he was mad that I spit the licorice in his face. So 
there's always differences in guys in dressing rooms. And you got to remember when you've been on a ladder and you've been on the top, when somebody's trying to knock you off, if, if they had an ad, if they had an attitude about it, you kind of change your personality a little bit. So I wasn't proud of that story, but I told that story before because it, I, I didn't get along with Jim. I just, yeah. I mean, you know, my friends, the ones that my peers weren't really close to him. He had his own separate dressing room, private and everything. He didn't, he didn't mingle with the talent in the back. And I mean, you know, I'm hanging out with the nasty boys and Kurt Henning and macho man and IRS Mike Rotundo and none of us liked him. I mean, you know, it's just, but it wasn't a jealousy thing that he was doing better than us. We all accept the fact that guys are going to do better. And sometimes they're not really better than other people. It's just, they, they might appeal. They might be more money to attraction or whatever. So you just got to accept that. It was more the attitude. I'm from a very humble business. When you walk in that dressing room, I taught talent. And when you walk into the dressing room, your first thing is, is to go around and introduce yourself if you don't know people and shake yeah. their hand. Hi, I'm Steve Kern. I'm from Florida. How you doing? Hi, I'm Steve Kern. And I'll shake everybody's hand. But when people don't do that, then it's almost like rude or a slap in the face. And so audiences and fans, they don't get to see the whole picture. They only get to see a small picture where some, well, Steve Kerr told a story where he's spitting Ultimate Warrior's face. I don't like Steve Kerr. Okay, yeah. I get it. But do you know the whole story? Do you know the whole reason that I just didn't feel like being cooperative? I mean, you know, so for whatever it's worth, you make a lot of mistakes in wrestling. I made a lot of mistakes. You think 44 years, I was perfect? Absolutely not. I know I pissed a lot of people off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was out of my way sometimes. Yeah, I've heard a lot of bad things. Like Tom Fleming, I don't know if you know Tom. He was graphic designer there at the WWF. He, he designed Papa Shango's costume for his debut. And he said that Jim just was walking past and his cape was on the ground and he just kicked his cape uh papa shango's cape for no reason uh, on the way past like he just you're not the first person to say that kind of things about He's him another friend of mine oh tom mark, mark callus at that time was a close friend of papa's and okay. still is and he's another friend of mine i mean we're there's it's not a click it's here's yeah. it's everybody a family that's, everybody that's normal and business people are here there's only a few that float around thinking they're they believe their character. Yeah. They start believing they can actually do things. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I know behind the scenes, you know, the story, I know how tough you are. You think I'm going to do something. If I think you're going to beat me up. Well, how about if I don't think you can beat me up? You think I'm going to do something then I probably am. That's only because that I've been treated bad or somebody else. It's one of my friends because the one thing in wrestling is bad, bad, manners travels quick in a dressing room and if one of your friends comes to you and says hey man you know that guy that guy is a real jerk he won't even talk to you he won't even you know associate with you he's done this that this that's okay i already hate him where is he introduce me. 
we'll go back we'll go back to the book again because that's why we're here and we're going to keep kind of circling back to it and there's a foreword in this book by cm punk who's always kind of one of those people that's constantly talked about in in the wrestling world for one reason or another and people seem to think that they know exactly what's going on all the time in the world and here's the book this this book we'll go back to this book there you go let's get it up on screen here trying to get it in the middle yeah i have it there in the middle for you now have a little graphic yeah so cm punk i mean he's in tampa this weekend so i'm gonna be seeing him Ted DiBiase is also a real close friend of mine. He's here. That Both of them have just contacted me in this afternoon talking about getting together. But CM Punk was almost shocked when I asked him to do the forward. And here's the reason why. is because CM Punk doesn't go back with me through three generations. CM Punk came into my world when I was an agent. Yeah. But he had watched Skinner. He had watched the fabulous ones, and he was a he was a guy that studied the industry, and he watched old films, and he saw Steve Kern in his prime, and he gave me respect. And when when I went to OVW as a uh, talent agent and scouted, he was so respectful. He would come up to me and ask me questions that made sense, and put me over by saying, you know, I saw your match with. Um, Rick Flair one time where you went an hour in Atlanta and it was really entertaining, but it was a real education for me. That's a compliment. So what I explained to him is I've got so many friends that if I ask him to write a forward and tried to do name dropping, I mean, you know, when you go to high school with Hulk Hogan, you know, how much better does that get? And he lives right here. Well, if I do that, then I'm utilizing my relationship and friendship with them to attract people. When the story is not about them, it's about me. And I'd rather somebody that's not fully close, close friend does a forward so he can say, well, you know, I don't know why he asked me, but let me tell you what I think of him. And the same with Natalia Nightheart. I've known her since she was a little girl. A little girl. I wrestled her dad, Jim the Anvil. I wrestled Brett. Oh, and all of them. We were a tight-knit family. And I said, will you write an afterword? And she said, oh, I'm so humbled. And I'm going, wait a minute. Just speak from your heart. If I'm a bad person or I didn't teach you nothing, tell them. I probably won't put it in the book, but you can tell them. But at the same time, I would rather you're candid and not somebody that looks like they're trying to suck up to me, you know, like a friend saying, man, I said the best stuff I could say about you. I said, yeah, but half of that shit was pretty sloppy. I mean, you know, I'd rather you get facts because that I'm trying to overcome a generation gap. People that are wrestling fans now, they don't know who Steve Kern is and could care less. And I don't blame them. But sometimes young people can associate with younger talent and say, well, you know, CM liked him and Natalia likes him. And maybe he's not a bad guy. Maybe he did teach him something. Yeah. Um, There's a comment made by Bret Hart a while ago about Barry Horowitz. And I know you and Barry work together a lot as well. And. Brett was pretty much saying that he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Do you do you agree with that? 
I do. But I yeah. think that Bobby Eaton deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. I think there's guys that are overlooked, that were underrated, that I performed with or I wrestled that were way above a lot of people that are in the Hall of Fame. But you got to remember this, and, and this is where Brett sometimes is not getting a big picture. I mean, you know, the Hall of Fame is the same as the business. It's a work. You're not yeah. going into the Hall of Fame because you hit 900 home runs. You're going in because politically it's to an advantage to the company, whether it's attraction to the audience to come to the Hall of Fame celebration or a part of a WrestleMania that is, I, I give you an example, L.A. and putting Andy Kaufman in the Hall of Fame. Did he deserve to be in the Hall of Fame before Barry Horowitz? Hell no. But Barry Horowitz didn't mean anything, and, and that's the way they look at it. He gave his heart and soul to the wrestling business, but he's not going to get rewarded for it. So he should just consider it, okay, well, it's a work. It's not a real Hall of Fame. You know, winning titles is not real. And if you didn't win a title, then you're not in the Hall of Fame. Well, how'd you get to win the titles? Because politically, you were either in the right spot at the right time or somebody liked you. And there was a real rough time in the wrestling business when some things were changing so dramatically that because of the territories you may have worked or the things you had done, you were getting chastised by the company you worked for in a kickback kind of way because if they never could get at you now it's like mario said instead of making skinner out of steve kern why not just bring in steve kern mm. there's nobody in that company i couldn't work with and i could have made them look good if they wanted me to do a job then so be it, it wasn't about that it was about it's a business i would have given them much more of a performance i would have given them a lot more wrestling and a lot more you know what i thought was more uh, entertaining wrestling, but that just wasn't it. So you don't, what do you, you whine about it until you die? No, the object was, was to feed a wife and two kids and put clothes on their back and put my kids through college. And both of my kids under Vince McMahon, who I'm not a big fan of, but I don't dislike, but I put, he put my kids through college. My son's a doctor. My daughter is in charge of an IT company. So I accomplished my goal for what I was doing. For whatever I contributed, I got paid. I didn't get yeah. paid as much as a lot of people did because I wasn't as big a star. But it didn't matter. I still did what I wanted to do. And then I drug it out another 20 years. <laughs> 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 then I figured out a way to work and get paid and not take any bumps. Yeah. And that was to control yeah. talent because talent gave me respect for what I had done for the industry. And so you're not going to get respect in a dressing room, walk in there and you never wrestled your life and you try to tell two guys what to do. But if they know they can turn on YouTube, they can go to Wikipedia, they can go to Google and punch in your name and see an unbelievable list of time you were in an industry and characters you did that you understand the business. And when you're asking them to do something like get beat, 
they go, well, you know, let me think about it. Yeah, Steve Kern got beat. He got beat a bunch of times. But that's not much too much for him to ask me. Somebody's got to lose tonight. Yeah. And that somebody's you. So you, we had a lot of respect. And, I mean, it was, it was a great time. But at the same time, you know, that's the way the business is. They, they give you respect. But people don't see that that are fans. If, you, yeah. if you're in the business, you see it. It's like Mario. Mario, you, you're going to think I paid him off to get him to come on and talk to me. <laughs> but I swear I didn't do that. But that, that's the kind of thing that humbles you when somebody – had, I had one match with him, and he said all those nice things. I'm, he I'm was really, your – I'm, I'm kind of floored. I'm hoping he was your debut match. Your, your debut match, Brett and Jim's debut match, The Undertaker's debut match. My God, he was so many people's debut match. Ironically, like it's it, there's a mad list. I could send it to you later. Someone asking how was Hogan backstage? How was he backstage? You it know depends on who you were. It, it depended on who you were. Yeah, if you're a person that he liked, he was very cordial, very nice man. He's very humble. He's a, just a regular man. He puts his pants on the same way you do. If he doesn't, if he doesn't like you, he ignores you. He doesn't go out of his way to ignore you. He just ignores you because he doesn't like you and he don't want to be around you. He's exactly the same way Andre the Giant was. Andre the Giant either loved you or he didn't want you to be around him in the dressing room. And he loved me. And that was why I would always say, well, if you hurt me, I'm going to get the giant on your ass. <laughs> but it was because that I was a real, real mark for Andre. And I would have done anything for him, especially when I was young. And I entertained Andre. It was almost like he had a little wind-up toy named Steve Kern in the dressing room, and I'd do stupid stuff just to make him laugh. But he had the same persona as Hulkster. You can't always say he's nice. And here's the thing, in public, too. I've seen him go out of his way to do autographs for kids and things like that. Then I've also been with him in Japan we were on a tour one time and a kid came up while we were eating and interrupted our meal and Hogan took his card and put his spaghetti on top of the thing he wanted signed and then put it on his chest and said, take that to your dad. <coughs> Here's the reason. It wasn't because he was trying to be a bad guy. It's because he was trying to teach the parents that these guys are eating dinner. Wait yeah. till they get up. Or say, excuse me, when y'all are finished, would you mind if we get an autograph or something? And, and, and do it very, you know, politely. But when you put something on a table in front of somebody like you're expecting something, sometimes it's been a long trip getting there. Sometimes it's been problems with your body. It's just different times. You know, I get it all the time. People say, well, you know, Hogan's not very friendly. I go, well, who are you? Why isn't he friendly to you? Were you friendly with him? Or did you try to be cool and go up to him and say, well, you know, I'm not a wrestling fan, but sign this. <laughs> Wait a minute. You just hear what you just said? 
you insulted him by saying, well, you're not really a wrestling fan, but sign this paper anyway. I mean, you know, people have to understand some of the times your mouth is a gateway to hell sometimes. And when you speak words, you don't take them back. They come out. And in excitement, sometimes you misplace yourself and you're, you're, you're putting yourself in the wrong light and you get rude. And when you get rude with people that don't like to have people get rude with them, they just kind of put you in your place. You know, I mean, I think we're all subject to that. I'm, I'm kind of bad at my age now in traffic. When I'm driving, <laughs> if the light turns green and you don't go, you get to hear my horn. And I don't toot the horn. I lay down on it. Come on, man. Wake up. The light's green. You're on your phone. Let's go. I'll probably get shot in traffic someday, and that'll be my end. But I just have a lot of youth in me still that tells me, okay, well, we're sharing this road. Now, why should I let you do this and not have some kind of reaction? Well, I still react. I have to be careful because I got five grandkids. And if one of them's in the backseat, I got to make sure that when I roll that window down and say something, it's not F-bombs coming out of my mouth. You know, yeah. so it's a different game I play. But at the same time, you, you I'm, I'm, I'm 71. I'll be 72 in September. I'm still looking through the eyes of a guy that thinks he's 30 when it comes to confrontations. When mm. I see somebody doing something that I don't like, I am not shy about telling them, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. What are you doing that for? Why are you tearing that up? Why are you doing that destruction? Hey man, you shouldn't do that. Who are you old timer? Well, you just don't know who I used to be or you'd be scared. <laughs> <laughs> and you were saying, I, I watched I watched a previous interview and when you said about your grandkids and for you, younger people, you were saying that was in the kind of the way you wrote the book as well, that there was nothing vulgar in there and it was all kind of family oriented. So your grandkids can pick up this book and read it, you know, so it's for people of all ages as well. Right. I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to write a book but I, I had to think about it a long time, Maurice. I had to think about who's going to read my book. And will I be there to defend myself someday? I won't. I'll be dead and gone. And if my grandchildren decide to read about their grandpa, they don't call me grandpa. They call me Big Daddy. But if they decide to read about Big Daddy, I want them to be able to read it and not go, gosh, Big Daddy used bad language. Yeah, Big Daddy was was around people with drugs. Oh, Big Daddy did this. Oh, Big Daddy. No, I wanted them to be able to read it. And I didn't want to embellish it. I didn't want to make me sound bigger than life. I just wanted to tell the story. And I'm only halfway through, and that goes up to 1987, the second book that I'm writing. We're, we're pretty close to the end of that one, but I've got another unbelievable part of a story, and it's an athlete that has reached his peak and is over it. And he's trying to figure out what he's going to be when he grows up because it's stepping out of the wrestling business is harder than stepping in. And where do I fit? What do I do? I mean, I took things and uh, you'll read it in the next book, but I took things and people don't realize it, but you're all of a sudden, you're not pre-qualified to do another job after pro wrestling, except maybe a bouncer, yeah. a bodyguard. And then you're really too old, unless you're a good shot and you can shoot people good. But 
you have to fit in because life isn't over. And that's what I used to do when I teach kids. I'm, te- I'm teaching them, I'm, I'm going to make you a millionaire. Roman Reigns, I'm going to make you a millionaire in the WWE. But I can't guarantee you'll be a millionaire all your life. Once you start making money, you better be a smart guy and put some aside and save money and invest money right and not blow it on materialistic things because there is an end. There's an end. I mean, you know, look around. Guys come to the end and they're done. It's over. Some guys will hang on like Rick or, you know, guys that can get other positions. Stone Cold, he's got good TV experience and some movies, but that's far and few between. And if you set a lifestyle so high that you can't afford it, what do you do when you don't have a job? Mm-hmm. You're going to make your own job? Good luck. Yeah, it, 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 it happens a lot, really, unfortunately, in the business as well. But um, someone was asking earlier, I know you probably don't like, or will you probably get asked this question all the time. They want to hear about the WrestleMania nine the doink switch how you becoming doink kind of happened and i know we're kind of running over time here so i'm not going to keep you too much longer okay it's wrestlemania nine it was the first outdoor wrestlemania at caesar's palace in las vegas in those days vince was taking advice from the talent vince wasn't a dominating dictator he was taking advice because we had all been around we'd all done things And he had asked for guys, hey, if you have any ideas of something you did in territories or whatever, let me know. And if we can incorporate it, you know, it might be some opportunity for you. (laughs) Well, I got to the point when I was doing Skinner, I had a big intro in as Skinner, the character with vignettes. I had, you know, pretty good push at the very beginning. And then it just kind of planed out and they stopped utilizing the character. And they beat him and they didn't do much with him and they held him back and said, okay, well, do I just accept what's happened or do I create my own opportunity? And Matt Bourne was doing doink and Matt and I were close friends and we were about the same size. He was left-handed. I was right-handed, but he was actually 20 pounds heavier than me when I was Skinner. So I had to fatten up to get up to Matt's size, but I went to Vince and I gave Vince several ideas and this just happened to be one. And I said to Vince, I said, you know, I got an idea. I said, I think that I can hide under that ring for at least five hours. So if you put me in there a couple hours before the show and it runs three hours, I think I could stay under there and survive. What do you think if I was to, shave off the Skinner beard, cut my hair or put it up in a ponytail and put on that doink suit and paint my face and put me under that ring. And at the right time, I come out as a second doink, especially in Las Vegas with all the magic and that kind of stuff. And he looked at me when I gave him the idea and he said, hey, what is wrong with you? (laughs) You've been chewing licorice now for a couple years and you've been doing a Skinner thing. And he says, now you want to be a clown? I said, well, I see that it would be a cool thing if there's two clowns 
and you never know which clown it is. And then plus if one clown hides and comes out, I just see it as being entertaining. And he says, yeah, well, I don't see it that way. So he blew me off. He just told me no. And then we get to WrestleMania. I'm in my room and I didn't have a match. I'm there with my family, but we're doing sightseeing. And he calls my room and leaves a message for me. I call him. I call him and he said, come up. I want to talk to you. And so I thought he was going to fire me. I thought, uh-oh, here we go. I'm not in WrestleMania. He ain't been doing anything with me. He's going to can me. So I was accepting the fact that I was probably going to get my notice. I went up there and he said, hey, you remember that idea you gave me? And I said, which one? And he said, the idea of you being a, a second doink. And I said, yeah. He said, well, we're going to do that. Tomorrow morning, I want you to go to makeup two hours before the show. They're going to shave you. They're going to paint your face. We're going to put the costume on you. We're going to put a jumpsuit that says ring crew on, towel over your head. While the ring's putting the ring together, when it gets to a certain level, we're going to throw you under the ring. I'll put a monitor under there and a headset so you'll know what's going on and you can watch the show. We'll give you some water and a bucket to pee in if you have to. And he said, <laughs> when the time's right, this is what you want you to do. And it was, you know, whatever happened in the match, people saw it. So anyway, I went for it. And then when I got back on, when I went back under the ring to hide again, they threw a tarp over me. So when I laid flat, as I went under the ring, the crew guy threw a tarp over me because if they came back with a camera to look under the ring to see where I went as the clown, the second clown, and they couldn't see me. They showed the bottom of the ring, but I was laying under a tarp there, so they kind of disguised me. But Maurice, if I was ever going to make a mistake in wrestling, that was the biggest. Really? That was the biggest mistake I could have made. Because I went from an easy job of when the bell rang, I was on the floor rolling around, grabbed the mouthful of water and walked through the curtain to an hour painting my face, which I'm not an artist, and being prepared to get into the match and then going out there and being a freaking clown. And I thought it was a brilliant idea until I woke up and realized I'm freaking doink. Yeah. Oh, no. And then it got worse. My kids were in school here in Tampa. My son, when I was Skinner, the kids thought that was cool. They thought, man, your dad's a bad guy, but he is cool. We even did, me and Macho Man went to my son's third grade class for Bring Your Dad to School Day. And we went in full costume and did career day for 33rd graders, my kid. And so we were over. And he was over. Now, when I flipped and did doink, and he had to tell his friends, oh, my dad's doink. Oh, your dad's a clown? Oh, man. And then they were going, they were calling my kid doink. And, I mean, you know, he didn't like that too much. And it was almost yeah. like a curse. And this is where it really gets worse. People will ask me, sometimes at autograph signings, and they'll say, well, who were you? I said, I was Steve Kern. Never heard of him. I was one of the fabulous ones. Never heard of him. I was Skinner. Never heard of him. I was Doink the Clown. I know you. And I'm the only identification I had was about a three-month run as a clown. Oh, my so, God. 
I think a lot of people. Great. I think I think a lot of people remember just I suppose because of the scale of the event, WrestleMania, and it was kind of one of those moments that happened as well. So, no, I, I was proud. I was proud of it. my idea, but I was cursed because I came up with it, and then I ended up stuck being a clown. <laughs> so. It was a great idea, and then it backfired on me again. When I went to WCW, I jumped ship after yeah. being doink for a short time, and Eric Bischoff offered me a contract in WCW. <laughs> when I went to WCW, because I hid under the ring in WrestleMania, they came up with an idea. Flair and uh, Hogan were wrestling all around, and they had a cage match in Detroit. And they came up with this idea, put me in a full black suit with a black mask, hide me totally, and put me under the ring. And I spent six hours under that ring, and I came out with the steel bar out from under that ring, and I beat him up, and I beat up Jimmy Hart and everybody, and then I left. And then when I walked through the curtain, I took the mask off and handed it to Eddie Leslie, Brutus of Barber Beefcake, and he came back through the curtain like it had been him under the ring. But he wasn't the one that was under that ring. It was me. And to prove it, if anybody watches the video, if they watch me going through the curtain leaving, which is on video, you look at my boots. I wore a black patent leather wrestling boot. When Eddie Leslie comes through and it looks like it's still the same guy, he's got on regular flat black leather boots. So it wasn't him. But Hogan said, if you're going to put somebody in there that's going to whack somebody with a crowbar, I'd rather you give it to Steve Kern because he's going to make it look real. And after you spend six hours under a ring, you're ready to whack somebody. So yeah. it was just another another time that it kind of backfired again. I said, man, I'm going to end up being like a groundhog instead of a wrestler. I'm one of the only guys who can go under the ring and just stay there forever. You've, you've trained so many wrestlers and one man that you've trained is absolutely on top of his game now, Roman Reigns. How proud are you of him and did you expect him to reach these levels? Okay, yes. Yes, I expected him. He's a second generation. He's a fine young man. He is very respectful, very humble, very quiet. Um, but I didn't train him by myself. I influenced him because I try to make it perfectly clear for all the credit I get for all of these people that came through FCW when I owned it and ran it. I wasn't the only one teaching. Sure. I was in, I was a mainstream teacher. Don't get me wrong, but I taught you. Oh, you still there? Yep. Yep. I'm here. Okay. Oh, we've just lost Steve there at the moment. We we will try get him back. Great storyteller there. Uh, I can't really. I haven't got a lot of time to go through a lot of this chat tonight, guys, um, because we are very very pushed for time, and I'm actually having some technical problems with my laptop at the moment, and my battery is quite low. So if we can get Steve back, we will have him here shortly. Yeah, no problem, man. I, I can air as many as many questions as I can, but I knew tonight was going to be kind of tight for time because we're here for an hour or so. Um, oh, here's Steve back now. You got me? Got you back, man. Okay. Go ahead. What I was explaining was, is that would be great. I'd like to pat myself on the back and claim all the talent that came through me. Yeah. But 
I believe in telling it just like it is. And then what it is, is you don't learn from one person. You learn from an experience through a lot of different people. Dusty Rhodes, to me, was one of the greatest guys on a microphone of promo. He was teaching their promo skills. Dr. Tom Pritchard was one of my trainers. Norman Smiley, one of my trainers. Billy Kidman, one of my trainers. And so there was a montage of really professional people working with me, but we all got along and we were all on the same page. Yeah. I spent more time teaching them about life and dressing room because that, um, you know, I've had students say to me, says, well, how many, how many moves can you teach me, Mr. Kern? Dean Malenko knows a thousand. I said, well, I can teach you a thousand and one, but how many of them are you going to use? I mean, you know, you got to be realistic. What I'm going to teach you is, is how do you survive? You're a minnow in a sea of sharks. How are you going to swim? Are you going to be in that dressing room and think, well, being quiet's a good idea because I'm not bothering anybody. Then somebody's going to think that's mistaken for cockiness and arrogance. He's quiet. He won't talk to nobody. Okay. Or are you going to be loud and try to get attention? Are you going to go in the bathroom and take a crap and not flush the toilet. And then the undertaker walks in there and goes, Hey, who didn't flush the toilet? Are you going to make the right choices? Are you going to be the person that people want to work with because it, they like you and they're going to make you look great because they like you? Or are you going to be that person they're envious of and jealous and they're going to want to knock you off or make you look bad? You have to understand there's more to learn in the business than movement. And with Roman, when I saw Roman, I looked at him, he looked like a movie star to me. I mean, the guy looked like some kind of movie star. And he had a great body. He was a football player, an athlete. And I said, this guy's going to make some money. This guy is going to make some money. But he's, you know, his dad was a wrestler that I went through a lot of second generation wrestlers. Some of them were third generation wrestlers, you know, that came through. So with that being said, there's an advantage. When you're a second-generation wrestler, you watched your dad. You know his friends. You might, I might have even wrestled you when you were a kid, just playing with you at a party or something. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's the opportunity to see him excel is amazing to me because I want to see him all successful. I spent the afternoon, like I said earlier, with Natalia. I knew her since she was a little yeah. girl. Jim the Anvil Nightheart's daughter. And she's talking on um, a television show that we were doing today about the book. And she's saying, I just got to say, Steve Kern taught me everything. And when it was over, I walked over to him and says, well, then, Natty, that's nice, but I didn't teach you everything. I said, you are so complimentary to me, but let me tell you the way I see it. I taught you this much. Your grandpa taught you this much. Your uncle Bret Hart taught you this much. And combined all together, you learned the business and you put it together really on your own. You just had us add the pieces that you weren't sure about. And so I, you know, I really like to take credit and 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 embellish myself and make me sound bigger than life, but it ain't that way. I mean, you know, it's not that way. It's only your, you give them as much as you can. 
But here's the thing. A lot of them don't come with an open mind to learn. I identify you right off the bat in two weeks, whether you have the secret ingredient, and that's passion. If you have a passion for this industry, I'm going to turn you on and light you up because I'm going to give you the answers to every secret that you ever wanted to know. But if you're just passing through my business and you want to see if you can make money because that you failed in football or you couldn't make it being a bouncer or whatever it is, then I'm going to cut you off somewhere along the line and let you know this ain't for you. So with every great story that came out of FCW, there's also sad stories. Ricky the Dragon Steamboat has an awesome son that came through there to be a wrestler, and he got cut. And there was nothing really wrong with him. He could have made it, but they just didn't see anything in him. So I saw my friend's kids lose their jobs. And it really started to get to me, Maurice, because it, I'm, I get emotionally attached to talent. I have sure. an utmost respect for anybody that wrestles. I don't care if it, like Mario said, he just jobber. That doesn't matter. He's in my business, and he yeah. did it. So I got the utmost respect. But you just kind of got to roll with it. And, then, you know, so anyway, I didn't mean to get way off, but I just didn't want to take credit, even though Roman Reigns, yeah. he, was a, he was a sure given. I'll tell you who I discovered. And it was like, now here's here's Steve Kern taking credit for this. But I discovered is Jordan, the big black dude that's got MVP as a manager now. Amos. I found him. Yeah. You know where I found him? I found him. I found him at a place called First Watch eating breakfast. I was eating breakfast. And this monster walks by me. I look at him and I go, there's money. There's money. <laughs> and the way I judged that, Maurice, is everybody in that restaurant turned around and looked at him. He wasn't a wrestler. Yeah. He played basketball for University of South Florida. He was from Nigeria. And I walked over to him and I took my WWE card, my business card, and I laid it down on his table. And I said, hey, what do you do? He said, I'm a basketball player. And I go, are you a good one? Eh. I said, well, you're about 18 feet tall. You ought to be able to just push the ball in. And he goes, well, and I go, you can think you're going to get rich playing basketball? Well, I don't know. I said, well, here's my card. If you ever want to get in the wrestling business, pick up the phone and I'll make sure somebody gets in touch with you. And he did. He called me. It was almost three months later, but he called me. I mean, so... I sent somebody to hire him and they hired him. And, you know, I worked with him at NXT when he first went there. Cause that I was, I was still working for the company when they moved to Orlando as NXT, but I was staying behind the scenes. I yes. was helping them make a transition into taking over FCW and the talent that I had created with my, my crew into their talent and making sure they understood, Hey, this is still the same business. This is still the same office. Don't think that I've been mistreated. Just think about it like this. I'm moving to another position in my life and somebody else has taken this one. So there's no, there's no, no problems. I'm good. So anyway, Steve, we're kind of, we're way over time here now and I appreciate you for staying with me.
But look, we we'll, we're going to catch up again. We're going to we'll catch up again when when book two is just about to launch. But for people that want to read it, the Karen Chronicles Volume One of I don't know how many volumes you're going to have because you have a lot of stories. But definitely just two, yeah. Well, I say that Maurice, real quick, but I also know that there's a lot of stories that I forgot when I was trying to dictate it. And they came back to mind later on because a lot of my friends say, hey, did you tell a story about what you did to me on 4th of July? No. Okay, well, so I might have like a flashback book too where I say, you know, here's a few things that I missed when writing book number one. I might do it in book number two and then introduce it for book number three as a shorter book and just say, you know, when you're trying to talk about 44 years in the same industry, it's pretty hard to condense it down. And yeah. if you want to really tell a story, you got to tell it right. So I might go back and, I mean, you know, add a few. But right now it's just get, uh, scaled for two books. Yeah. And the link the link is in the bio there for the Amazon for the book. And it's getting rave reviews. And check it out if you can, guys. And Steve, thanks a million for today, man. Well, thanks, Maurice, for having me on. I appreciate it. And get to bed, man. You're way past your bedtime. <laughs> Half 12 now. Cheers, man. Cheers.